Turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. Good to see everybody here. If you have your cell phone or other noise-making device, be sure you silence that. Yes, even you folks on the internet. Turn yours off too. You don't need any distractions at home. Second Kings chapter three. Last week we finished with verse eleven. We saw Jehoram, who is Israel's king. Karen leaves hers off all the time, so she actually turned it on. It was just a that's okay. Jehoram, Israel's king, we saw Jehoshaphat, Judah's king, and then the king of Edom, who had no business with either one of them, and neither of them had any business hanging out with him. But they're all out of God's perfect will. They're all out of water. They're seven days' journey into the wilderness. And the instigator of all this, the one who said, hey, let's go, Jehoram, goes from leader to loser in a hurry. As he cried out there in verse 10, Alas, now that's a cry of woe. Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But it was a good thing they had Jehoshaphat with them. And although Jehoshaphat waited a little bit later than he should have, he at least asked in that dire situation, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And I recommend you re-watch last week's lesson, if you missed it, to see what that means. So let's go on. We're in 2 Kings chapter 3, for those of you who just joined us. And we'll now read verse 12 for the new part of our study. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. Now this was referring to Elisha, who in verse 11 was introduced again. The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Eden went down to him. And although all three kings went down to Elisha, their motives were completely different. Edom was the enemy of Israel and of Judah, but of Israel when it was one nation before it was divided after Solomon's death. Edom was the enemy of Israel, but right now Edom was in a bind. Jehoram was the king of Israel. And the reason he went down to Elisha, as we're going to see, is that he was afraid he would be delivered to the Moabites. The Moabites were a people who should have feared Jehoram instead, but he feared them. And then Jehoshaphat, though he was not a strong believer like David, he was a believer nonetheless. And he believed and he sought the word of the Lord from Elisha. 
I'd like to know what was going through his mind at that time. I wondered if he told himself, Jehoshaphat, that's probably what he called himself when he talked to himself, just like I do when I talk to myself. Jehoshaphat, why didn't you seek this prophet of the Lord earlier? He's been with us the whole time. If he didn't ask himself that, he should have. So you have three kings who go down to one prophet, and all of them have a different motive. Let's look at verse 13. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, that's Jehoram, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Boy, what a hard saying from the prophet of Israel to tell his own king, Get thee to the prophets of thy father and thy mother. In other words, Jehoram, why don't you ask your religious leaders what you ought to do right now? You got yourself into this mess, and now you want God to bail you out when you've ignored him all along. Why don't you go talk to the same prophets who helped get you into this mess? The ones whose advice and counsel you followed continually. Why is God's word suddenly important to you? And we know it wasn't important to Jehoram. Except that today it might provide a temporary escape from his circumstances. And that's how a lot of people use God's word. Elisha's rebuke of this unbelieving king who came to the Lord's prophet. Reminds me a lot of John the Baptist's response to these unbelieving Pharisees who came to him at the Jordan River when he was baptizing. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, if you're taking notes, you may want to write that down. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. It says... Then went out to him, that is to John the Baptist, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat, or fitting for repentance. He didn't say, I'm so glad you guys came to the river. I'm so glad to baptize you. He knew who they were. God had revealed to him, and he probably knew by his own experience with Pharisees and Sadducees, That they weren't there for the same reason that those believers were. The believers came confessing their sins, meaning they confessed that they were sinners. They believed they needed to be saved. They looked to the one who would soon die on the cross for them. 
But the Pharisees and Sadducees, as they almost always did, came to stir up trouble and to steer those people away from truth and to rebuke John for doing what God called him to do. So there were two types of people who came to John that day, those who desired to be delivered from sin and those who did not. And John baptized the believers, the ones who had confessed their sins and accepted God's free gift of salvation, which would be fulfilled in the very near future in that day at Calvary. But John rebuked those unbelievers who preferred their sins. And we might say today to those Pharisees or to Jehoram, as Elisha did, what are you doing here? Now, that's how we would say it. What are you doing here? With an emphasis on the word you. <laughs> Another passage in Luke chapter 16, verses 23 through 24, there was a story told of a rich man who died and went to hell. And the Bible said he was in hell, lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham from afar off, and he had a conversation with him. And here's what it said. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And then it continues on, and I'll go down to verses 27 through 31. Still in Luke 16, if you're taking the notes, it's verses 27 through 31 now. And this rich man, continuing to appeal to Abraham, said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now Abraham said this to the unbelieving man who was also a witness of what Moses and the prophet said. He had those writings. This unbelieving man, this rich man, before he died and went to hell, had access to the same truth that his five brothers do and did. And from the rich man's reply there in verse 30, we learn a little bit more about his unbelieving brothers. Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. So by deduction, we learn that this rich man was saying, my brothers will not believe what Moses and the prophets wrote. Did you catch that? He, they will not believe what Moses and the prophets wrote. And since that is the case, Abraham concluded Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And that was a right conclusion. Some would say, well, that was cruel of Abraham not to send someone to testify to these five men of the truth. 
But Abraham said, no, they have the same information you had, and they will reject it just like you do. They'll either hear it or, just like you, they will reject it. Now, Elisha, in our text, knew he was speaking to two unbelieving kings, Edom, the king of Edom for sure, and Jehoram, who was a Baal worshiper. In fact, Elisha didn't even acknowledge the king of Edom. If you look, if you read in this passage here, he doesn't acknowledge him at all. He doesn't even say, what are you doing here? But he rebuked Jehoram by telling him to go consult the prophets of his father and mother. And look at what was most pressing to Jehoram if you're looking back in your text there at the end of verse 13. The most pressing thing to Jehoram was this statement. The Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Jehoram was more concerned about dying a physical death or being taken a prisoner of war, losing his rights. He was not ready to die in any way, not spiritually, not emotionally. He was not ready to die. He did not say as David did, I have sinned against the Lord. I want to show you what it looks like when a man is ready to die. When his own imminent physical death, that means it's about to happen does not hinder his spiritual outlook. I want to show you what that looks like. It's found, of many places it's found, but we find it in, and brother, I think I put Luke 21, I believe it's Acts, it may be Acts, but Luke 21, 10 through 14. Let me read you the, the verses. And as we tarried there many days, There came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus, and when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle, now that's Paul the apostle, and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and they shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, now these are are the followers of Luke, the apostles and those disciples, And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. They didn't want him to die. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and break my heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Sweet will of God. Leah and I were looking at that song a moment ago. The will of the Lord be done. That's what Paul was concerned about. What was Jehoram concerned about? Being captured by the three kings and dying that day. What was Paul concerned about when his death was imminent? Not only being bound, but dying in the name of the Lord. There was a man who wasn't worried about his physical death. That doesn't mean he enjoyed being beaten and tortured and imprisoned and probably with had food and water withheld from him at times. 
Being mocked, that doesn't mean he enjoyed that, but he was willing to endure it for the sake of the Lord and the ministry he'd been called unto. But he wasn't worried about physical death because he had eternal life. And furthermore, he was not happy with his followers who were overly concerned about his physical death. And by God's grace, that's how I want to live my life as I approach my death. I want those around me to be able to say, you know, Andy's not enjoying the dying process here, but he's not afraid of death because he has eternal life. May God grant it. Verse 14, and Elisha said, now he's replying to Jehoram, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. If you did not believe that Jehoram came to Elisha with a wrong motive, perhaps this should settle it for you. Elisha said, Jehoram, I would totally disregard you if it weren't for Jehoshaphat standing here with you three. Another translation reads this way for that part of the verse. If I did not respect Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Elisha would have simply ignored the cries of Jehoram. Perhaps he wouldn't have even been on the trip. And he certainly would not consider the cries of the king of Edom. We see this principle in even a larger form when God promised Abraham he would not destroy Sodom if only ten righteous people were found in that city. And Lot, who the Bible tells us was just, though he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the world, he was a just man. He was a saved man. And Lot, who was just, was that one person who was righteous. And he was delivered from that city, and then the Lord destroyed it. But because Lot was there, God's mercy allowed for that appeal from Abraham. God's mercy allowed Lot to leave with his wife and daughters. And we know what happened to his wife. She looked back at that city and she turned to a pillar of salt. And perhaps you didn't remember or you don't know what happened with his daughters. I think it was even worse than that. After leaving the city, Lot's daughters sinned with their father. They got him drunk, and then they committed incest with him. And this particular sin resulted in the beginning of the Moabites and the Ammonites coming from their wombs. Did you hear that? The Moabites. The ones who have now rebelled against Israel in our text hundreds of years after Lot and his daughters sinned. The ones who've rebelled against Israel are now a mighty nation that never should have been born in the first place. But because of sin, they were born. And in a demonstration of God's mercy, 
Elisha inquired of the Lord for Israel and even by proxy for Edom because of Jehoshaphat. And we can't leave this verse without making an even greater application. Jehoram was a sinner who deserved to be delivered into the hand of his enemies, the Moabites. You and I were sinners who deserved to be delivered into the hand of our enemies, death, hell, and the grave, the lake of fire. Jehoram was shown mercy because of the presence of another who was righteous. And you and I are shown mercy because of the presence of another on the cross for us who was righteous, Jesus, through whom God showed mercy to us. Now let's go on to verse 15. Elisha continues, But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now for you dedicated Bible students, and I wish, I hope all of you are, but if you're not, perhaps you'll become one. I'm going to use the study of the word minstrel to show you how to make a logical deduction. And this will help you in your Bible study. This is what Brother Fulton and I do every time we study passages that are not immediately self-explanatory. In other words, on their face, they still leave a little bit to be understood. And so we have to search the scriptures elsewhere, look at the original language and, and all of that grammatical construction. There's a lot that goes into it. And if you'll do this in your own study, it will enrich your spiritual life tremendously. You'll start asking questions like, why is that word used there? What does it mean in this sentence? So let's just do this with the word minstrel. The Hebrew word for minstrel is also translated as the word instrument. So a minstrel can be an instrument or it can be one who plays an instrument. In Psalm chapter 68 and verse 25, Psalm 68 verse 25 the Hebrew word that we see translated as minstrels here is translated as players and then as instruments in the same sentence. And it says, the singers went before, the players on instruments followed after, among them were the damsels playing with timbrels. In our text it says, when the minstrel played. Now, the minstrel, the instrument, doesn't play itself, does it? Just like a gun doesn't shoot itself, contrary to what a lot of liberals think. Somebody has to play the minstrel if it's the instrument. So, in our text, because we looked at the use of the word minstrel, it's an instrument. It's also one who plays the instrument. Then we may conclude in our text that... There was a man who was a minstrel who was summoned to play his instrument for Elisha. Now, I know that's not super profound theology, but that's just a real simple example of how you might figure out, well, this minstrel, was the minstrel the instrument or was the minstrel the person who played it? I hope that helps you a little bit. Now the minstrel doesn't play itself, somebody has to play it. And so that's what's happening here. 
And it said in our text, looking back in verse 15, the hand of the Lord came upon him. You see that at the end of the verse? The hand of the Lord. That's the power of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 32 and verse 11, listen to how God's hand is associated with God's power. It says, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? In fact, the Hebrew word for hand there is also translated as power in other verses, not in that one. That word for power is different. But great power with a mighty hand. So the mighty hand, the hand of God, is associated with his power in that verse. And so that gives you a little bit of an understanding as to what is happening to this minstrel. The power of God is resting upon him. And you're going to see why in just a moment. Looking in verse 16. And he said, thus saith the Lord. Now, stopping right there. Now that the hand of God is upon the minstrel... The minstrel is fixing to tell us, thus saith the Lord. The power of God has got to be upon one who says, thus saith the Lord. Because not everyone who says, thus saith the Lord, is telling us what the Lord said, right? We know that. If they're out of harmony with this book right here, with the, with the Bible, then everything after their thus saith the Lord is not meaningful. Not to us, anyway, who are saved by the power of God. It says... He said, he said, not he sang, that's interesting to me. So musically speaking, it's more like a ballad being told while an instrument is being played. Now we don't think Johnny Cash or Charlie Daniels lived in Elisha's day. And we're not given this minstrel's name, so we'll just call him the minstrel. How's that? We don't know whether this minstrel was a believer or whether he was even an Israelite. Thus saith the Lord. Now this was the basis on which the rest of what the minstrel said was founded. And if not for this preparatory statement, the people might believe that this minstrel just sat down and said a ballad with an instrument playing in the middle of a stressful moment. How inappropriate would that be? But all of his words would be what God spoke through him. And the first thing he said in verse 16 was, Make this valley full of ditches. Now I'm sure this wasn't received well at all by those men who were thirsty, probably tired. And now what are they being told to do? Stand by as the water falls from the sky? No, they're told to go dig a bunch of ditches. So in the flesh, this sounds counterintuitive to what they wanted to hear. Verse 17, the minstrel continues. For, now that connects verse 17 to verse 16, for. In other words, why you need to make this valley full of ditches is about to be told to you. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, that ye may drink both ye and your cattle 
and your beasts. What does wind do? Well, it forecasts the coming of a storm, a cold front. Yesterday, I was catching a few fish out on Lake Levon, and I thought, well, I'm going to fill my stringer up. And you know what happened? The wind turned out of the north-northwest. The temperature dropped about 15 degrees, and those fish got lockjaw, and I didn't put up with it long. So I got in the truck, and my buddy and I went to the house and cleaned the few we had. But without wind, which forecasts the coming storm, or rain, which is the fulfillment of the storm, that valley shall be filled with water. Now, I'm sure those men who had just been told to dig a ditch were thinking, all right, I could see us digging a bunch of ditches and then waiting around to see if it rains and filling the ditches up like it does a lake. But this minstrel said, you're going to dig these ditches, and furthermore, it's not going to rain in them. Now, we've got a bunch of unbelievers there and just a few who are believers, no doubt, just like it is in most big crowds. And they're probably thinking, well, we'll see about this. But I, did you notice in verse 17, if you look back at it again, in the middle of the verse, it says, yet that valley shall be filled with water. That's the passive voice. Do you know what that means? The active voice was when the minstrel said, make this valley full of ditches. In other words... This is what you're going to do. That's going to require work on your part. But being filled with water will require waiting on their part. Do you see that? They have to dig the ditches, which is work on their part. They have to, the, the ditches shall be filled with water. It didn't say, and you're going to fill them with water. I want to show you a bigger picture here. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden there in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Genesis 2, verses 5 through 6, where it says, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground, but... In other words, in spite of all that, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So do you see that? Without man even being present, God watered the ground with a mist. But sin entered into the world and death by sin. And one of those means of death was the great flood in Noah's day. Water that had been used to give and sustain life in the garden because of sin was now used to take the life of unbelievers. But it was used to save the lives of those in the ark. And then in Leviticus chapter 26 verses 3 through 4, we've studied this. I want you to listen to what God says here. Leviticus 26 verses 3 through 4 he told the children of Israel, If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. And the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. 
So when Adam and Eve were in the garden without sin, God gave water in its due season. They broke the covenant. God then gave the law to Israel and promised to still give them water in due season if they obeyed his commandments. They broke his commandments, so he withheld the rain, and he did it over and over again. Most recently in our studies, he did that by a proclamation of Elijah, who prayed that it would not rain for the space of three and a half years. But then what did God do? He brought rain. And now in our text, these disobedient men brought another drought upon themselves. But because of God's mercy, shown through the intercession of Elisha, God would again bring rain to them. Looks like Israel would get the picture after a while, doesn't it? But you know what? It looks like we would get the picture after a while too, mankind. The end of verse 17, the purpose of filling these ditches with water, God said, would be, that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. That ye may drink. I love this. God didn't put old, nasty water in those ditches. He didn't put bitter water in those ditches like there was at Marah. But water that they may drink. And not only they, but their cattle and their beasts. If you don't think God's merciful, read that again. Verse 18, Elisha continues, And this, that is all that we read, and this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. A light thing, that is for God. Just digging the ditches was not a light thing for man, was it? I dig holes around my yard from time to time for different reasons, to plant trees or to bury fish guts or all the things that you would dig holes in the yard for. And let me tell you, it's not a lot of fun. I'm always glad when I'm done with it. It's rewarding when I'm through. But that was not a light thing for me to do. And it certainly wasn't a light thing for these men to do. And they were probably in pretty good shape, but they were thirsty and tired. To show you what it means for something to be a light thing for God to do, let's listen to what is in Exodus chapter 18, verse 22. Verse 22. Exodus 18, 22, where Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, counseled him to appoint some lower court judges to help him deal with the continual issues that the ever-increasing children of Israel brought to him. They were wearing him out. And here's what Jethro told Moses. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee. But every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself. And they shall bear the burden with thee. Easier. The word easier is the same as the word light here in our text. So it was an easy thing in the sight of God to fill these ditches with water. 
But just as he made Adam till the ground by the sweat of his brow for food that he once enjoyed without all that labor, God would make these men dig ditches for water that they could have enjoyed by simply obeying God's commands. Remember what God told them in Leviticus? He said, if you'll obey my commands, I'll give you rain in due season. You won't have to dig a bunch of ditches. You won't have to have intercessory prayer from Elisha. Just keep my commandments, and I'll give you the, the rain in due season. Now in verse 18, the second half says, He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. Notice the positioning of that phrase. It comes after the colon that followed, and this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. So we may learn from this that it was just as easy for God to deliver the Moabites into Jehoram's and Jehoshaphat's hand as it was for him to fill those ditches with water. One is not harder than the other for God. It's easy as the interpretation of the translation of the word tells us. It's a light thing. In verse 19, and he continues, Elisha continues, or the minstrel continues, excuse me. And ye shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. This total destruction of the enemy is how God does his business. He's not into partial victories, and I'm glad for that, that the cross was a complete victory over sin. And today, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, that grave was a complete victory over death. Not a partial victory, not for some of the believers, and others just have to hope they'll rise again, but a complete victory. And that's how God does his business. And the things that God commanded these men to destroy were things that were precious to the flesh. Look at them again, the fenced cities. What did fenced cities offer? Protection from outsiders, protection from invaders, and then choice cities, which were the best cities. Wells of water, which sustained life, and then good pieces of land that could be used for farming and ranching. But none of these things were as precious to God as the obedience of his people. And for this crew, that command would be a big test. In other cases in the Bible, Israel did not completely destroy her enemies, like the Philistines and others. And in each case, those enemies rose up again and afflicted them, just like we read about the Moabites. Do you know we shouldn't even be reading about the Moabites right now in the text? They should have never been born. But they were, and we learn from it. Let's look now in verse 20. And it came to pass in the morning, when the meat offering was offered, that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. When the meat offering was offered. So there must have been some Levites in this group. We're not told who offered the meat offerings, but that was the job of the Levites. I'll remind you from Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 through 41, that that is the truth. Exodus 29, 38 through 41. Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, 
two lambs of the first year day by day continually. One lamb shalt thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. And with the one lamb a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of an hen of beaten oil and the fourth part of an hen of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb thou shalt offer at even and shalt do thereto according to the meat offering of the morning. That's what we're reading about here. And according to the drink offering thereof. For a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Because the meat offering was offered with the morning and evening offering of the lamb, it would remind Israel, or should have, of the one who delivered them from out of the house of bondage in Egypt. Led them through the wilderness and brought them into the land of promise. And it said there came water in our text as we close today. And this shows us again that on the part of the Israelites, the coming of this water was passive. On God's part, it was active. God did the watering just like he did in the garden. Just like he did in Noah's day. Just like when Elisha cast the crews of salt into the dry well. And we may conclude that the Israelites and the king of Edom drank from this water and their cattle and their beasts because this was the promise attached to the giving of the water. I'll fill the ditches with water that you may drink and your cattle and your beasts. God's good, isn't he? Amen. All right, any questions or comments about the lesson? And let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the ones who came, the ones who tuned in, the ones who will watch this broadcast later on in their time. And we're thankful, Lord, because these have desired to hear truth from your word. Your word is good. Your word is pure. And, Lord, we're not to esteem it lightly. So I pray that as we leave here today, we'll take what you've taught us and we'll meditate upon it. And it'll become a part of our vocabulary, Lord, a part of how we walk in this wicked world that will change us and will strengthen us spiritually. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.